Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But in this podcast, the focus isn't on training. Instead, I want to learn what I can do to help mitigate the effects of climate change. If clicker training has taught me anything, it is this. We really can make a difference. As individuals, we really can make a difference. Whether you have any interest in clicker training or not, the fact remains that a group of very eager horse people have spread clicker training around the planet. If we can do that, we can make a difference in the climate change crisis. One of the great privileges I've had as an ambassador for clicker training is I get to meet some really neat people. They may be coming to me to learn about clicker training, but I learn from them as well. And one of these individuals is Josephine Locke. Josephine has been attending my virtual clinics. She's not a horse person. She's a dog trainer who trains her dogs for conservation work. After our first virtual clinic together, she sent me an email that definitely got my attention. She wrote in part, When I was a young child in England, hedgehogs were a common sight, and I was fascinated by them. I saw them several times a week in our garden, and even rescued a few orphans. Now their numbers have declined massively, and they are rapidly becoming an endangered species in the UK, and conservation dogs have been trained to help protect nesting hedgehogs. Their decline may not be wholly due to climate change, but it is a factor, and human development has certainly played a role. If people could start to remember how nature has changed in profound ways over their own short lifetimes, maybe it would help them to begin to understand how humans can have significant effects on the delicate ecosystem and to start to realize that we have a responsibility to protect the natural system that we all depend on. What Josephine said in this email connected so much to what Amanda Scott talks about in her Accidental Gods podcast and here in her conversations on Horses for Future. What would it feel like if we got it right? If we took the actions that are needed to create social justice, economic stability, environmental protection, what would it feel like? Would it feel like the wonder a small child has watching hedgehogs in a garden? I have to admit that I have a soft spot in my heart for hedgehogs. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we don't have them in the U.S., but they are a part of some much-loved children's books. I don't know, but whatever the reason, the mention of hedgehogs got my attention. So I ended up inviting Josephine to join me in a conversation about hedgehogs. I thought we were going to explore what it would feel like if we got it right, and we did. But it turned out that our conversation was about so much more than that. We are about to enter the world of cybernetics. I had to look it up. 
you know, what, what exactly is cybernetics? And here's the quick definition that Google gave me. Cybernetics is a transdisciplinary approach for exploring regulatory systems, their structures, constraints, and possibilities. So, of course, that's connected to hedgehogs. That's something else I've learned from clicker training and from the horses. Everything is connected to everything else. So let's jump into the conversation and find out how. How would you like to be introduced? I guess Knows No Limit is kind of my business persona now. And I have a website and I have um, an Instagram and a Facebook page. If you want to talk about uh, my background, I guess I've um, been doing training in search and rescue um, for quite a number of years before I started Knows No Limit. Um, but before that, I have a background in, I did a degree in management science um, at Swansea University in, in the UK. And then I stayed on and did um, some doctoral research in management, management cybernetics. And I worked um, in project management and worked for a number of years um, in organisations like uh, higher education and the police in the UK. So I've kind of got a very strange background for for training. <laughs> I know. I have to I I have to ask what is management cyber cybernetics. Okay. So I guess um well first of all um I want to sort of um thank you for inviting me to talk to you about this. I've I love the, pub, the podcast and it and it kind of links to this because I've I've loved your podcast for a long time because to link horse training um with climate change appeals to the system thinker in me um, and it really resonates with the, the doctoral research I did in management cybernetics. So management cybernetics um, was founded by a guy called Stafford Beer who's a professor that um, I studied with. It's basically the science of effective organization and regulation in large complex systems. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <And laughs> yes. The thing that's so um, wonderful about it is it's not reductionist, it's holistic. So it's interdisciplinary and inclusive. Um, and it begs and borrows from all the different sciences and engineering and social science. And it's not really ashamed to, to steal ideas and words okay. and terminology from every, every science. So I would definitely love it because yes. I, yes, yes. <laughs> you would absolutely love it. Yes. Because um, I've always, I've always known that you expand a field by going outside of the field. Yes. Not from staying, not from staying in your own little bubble. Absolutely. You, yeah. So the idea of having, having something that is, that is deliberately looking beyond its own boundaries uh, makes total sense to me. So that sort of ties in well with a with a quote that um, uh, is in the book that Stafford wrote in 1994 that I contributed to, which is called Beyond Dispute, The Invention of Team's Integrity. Um, and he said in there, how shall we ever conceive of a new idea if we are bound by the categorization that delivered our problem to us in the first place? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Or in the training we, we talk about, you don't solve the problem by looking at the layer in which it is occurring. Yes. It's the same thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, I worked with him for, well, I did an undergraduate course with him. And then I stayed on to do the doctoral research with him. And he just invented this thing called Teams Integrity. 
um, which is basically a strategic planning tool. Um, and it's based on, uh, it uses an icosahedron as the model. So it, it creates a perfect democracy. Um, okay, so now you. So we were going. To, we were going to talk about hedgehogs, hedgehogs, but we are talking about this instead, or at well, least for a little bit. We, so explain what that means. Okay, so an icosahedron is a is a polyhedra. Um, it's a polygon that has uh, twelve nodes and thirty struts and twenty faces. It's um, it's used as the model for the discussion. So each of the struts corresponds to one of the people in the group. So there are thirty people in the group. And there are 12 okay. topics that they discuss. So uh, to, to first of all explain what integrity means, it comes from a word that Buckminster Fuller um, invented. So Buckminster Fuller was, he was lots of things, but um, primarily he was an architect. And he said that all systems are polyhedra. And he had this notion that um, nature exists in a balance between the forces of compression and tension. And so he combined those two words and created t- uh, tensegrity. And then Stafford added the word synergy to it to create integrity. So it stands for synergistic tensile integrity because the icosahedron, this, the structure of it is very, very strong because of the forces of compression and tension working together to make the strength of the whole greater than the sum of the strengths of its component parts. Okay. So... The way the whole thing worked is it was done over sort of a a long weekend retreat type of model. And 30 people were brought together to to coalesce around a central theme. So you might be trying to come up with a strategic plan or you might be, you know, trying to solve a big complex problem. Um, It didn't really matter what the topic was, but there was some reason why the 30 people wanted to discuss um, that area. And the the system broke down into three parts. So there was, first of all, there was a a problem jostle where all the 30 people just basically brainstormed all the different ideas around the central theme and came up with statements of importance. And there could be hundreds of those. And then there was a process of of voting and and kind of like trying to coalesce those ideas. Um, They were usually done on post-it notes, so you could stick several post-it notes together and try and make one topic out of several ideas that were similar um, and you eventually end up with 12, 12 topics. And then you had to assign those topics to the icosahedron to decide which roles you were going to play. Um, so the icosahedron was, we had all the nodes were coloured and the nodes were a team. So there were five people in each team because there's five struts coming out of each, each node. And so the people would, um, they would rank their preferences of the 12 topics in order of preference. And from that ranking, we had to try and assign the the topics to the coloured nodes and the people to the struts to decide which two teams they would take part in. Um, and that's kind of where I came in because that was a problem I ended up solving. Because <laughs> so um, the topics to the nodes um, is a mathematical problem of like it results in four million different solutions. <laughs> There are four million different ways of assigning the uh, 12 topics to 12 colours on the on the icosahedron. And then for every single one of those solutions, there's 30 factorial ways to assign the people to the struts. And I, I calculated that it would take um, the fastest computers, which was um, it's probably a bit faster now, but that was back in the 90s. It would take the fastest computers then about several centuries to solve the problem. 
and I had um, the lunch hour <laughs> to yes. solve it. <laughs> yes, uh, on the second day before uh, before the afternoon's talks. So I, I developed a hill climbing heuristic, and what that means is that um, it would randomly assign the topics to the nodes, and then it would start climbing the hill to try and um, come up with the the best solution given that configuration. So it would assign the people to those struts, and then it would um, then it would try a different configuration and see if it, the the value was higher. And it would all if the value was higher, it would replace the previous solution with a new one and it would keep doing that till it gets to the top of the hill and plateaus and can no longer get the the value any higher and then it would try a different configuration so it would start from scratch and try a different configuration of topics to to nodes and then it would start over and and climb a different hill and but at the end of the lunch hour we would take the highest solution it had come up with which was usually good enough to satisfy the people that um, were taking part. So they didn't necessarily get their first and second choices, um, but they got good enough solutions to to be happy to take part in those two talks. And then over the rest of the the event, the next uh, day and a half or two days, whatever's left, they would then spend time in each of their teams discussing their particular topics. And there would be three iterations of talks so they would they would take part in their two teams three times, and the icosahedron because it's a perfect a symmetrically perfect shape, the two the two nodes that were polar opposite to each other would be the two teams that that met at the same time, and so the people in those two teams would never actually meet each other in any of the meetings. They were always in different meetings to each other, and yet because of a a thing that uh, Stafford called reverberation. The ideas that each of those two teams expressed would end up um, proliferating around the whole, the whole shape and the whole structure and the whole group of people, very very quickly. And you would find people, say, in the green team, who never met people in the white team, saying the things that the white team had said the day before. <laughs> okay. So, at the end of the the event, you you took. You, you know, using the forces of basically compression and tension, you'd you generated enough discussion and and, used, and the reverberation of ideas to kind of compress the shared ideas into a, co- um, a cohesive whole, and that everyone agreed upon. And so you came out the other side with, you know, a plan or a manifesto or whatever it was you were trying to achieve which everyone felt like they'd taken part in and had been, you know, achieved. But it, and it wasn't just um, the lowest common denominator. It was something that everyone felt that they'd contributed to and that had taken the best of everything. Wow. So why are we not using this everywhere? That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, there there was a company formed, Teams Integrity Incorporated, which I believe is still in operation in Canada. Um, there were certainly several high-profile events that took place, and the book is still in publication. Um, it's still in print, I think. I think perhaps it was it was just very hard to, for people to penetrate. It's kind of complicated. I mean, the mathematics behind it um, are very complicated. I can't claim that I ever really understood it. It involves eigenvalues and vectors and things. Perhaps it was just, I don't know, perhaps it was too impenetrable or... 
or perhaps things that work really well scare people. <laughs> that could be, or it's one of those ideas whose time had not yet, not yet come. come. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking, of course, you know, I'm always thinking about climate change and what we need for that. And this sounds like something where it would lend itself really well to that. But then I'm also thinking about what's going on right now with the coronavirus and you know, with the Black Lives Matter protests. And here in New York, Governor Cuomo has, it's actually now probably a month ago, when the protests were at their peak, he put out to all the police departments in New York State that they have to redesign themselves. So that was the challenge to all the municipalities, that you have to redesign your police department, and you have nine months to do it. And if you don't do it, you will lose state funding. So there's you know, there's a little bit of um, incentive. Yes, the incentive. And, you know, and he talks about it's, it's no good to just protest. What is it that you want? Yes. You know, you know it, you, you're saying we want to defund the police department. What does that mean? You know, what what is it that you want the police department to do? Um, what do you want not to do? And within each of the municipalities, you have to get all the interested groups together all of the community leaders together, get the, the mayor together and so on. And and here's a blank piece of paper and he holds up a blank piece of paper and he goes through, you know, these are some of the questions. And it just sounds like this would be a perfect structure for something up for a project like this. Here's what needs to be done. We have to redesign the police departments. We have nine months to do it in. Let's get those discussions going. Let's use this structure so that everybody at the other end of it feels as though they have contributed and been heard. Been heard. I mean, that just for something like this, that's absolutely critical. Yes. Yeah. Because if, if, if particularly the, the community leaders who are leading the Black Lives Matter, if they don't feel as though they've been heard at the end of the day, and they don't trust the police department that that this redesign creates, you might as well have not gone through the exercise at all. Absolutely, yeah. Hmm. And uh, funnily enough, I actually kind of lived through a, you know, not to the same extent, but um, a similar thing that happened in the UK, of course, with um, the Stephen Lawrence murder and the McPherson report. And I actually worked for Thames Valley Police when all of that was, um, all of that was going, going on and watched the, the UK police um, forces basically uh, restructure themselves and rethink themselves because they were, were also grappling with institutional racism. And so they, they came up with um, some solutions. So, I mean, you could include in those discussions, people that have already been through this and come come out the other side with, you know, not perfect solutions probably and still a long way to go, but they have, they did implement some changes that, um, that certainly I saw uh, working in the force that I was working at at the time. Well, this is certainly, this is an interesting long way from what we were going to talk about but very fascinating. So how did you get from, from that to nose work? 
well, <laughs> of a very convoluted uh, trajectory, I guess. I mean, I spent a number of years working in project management and higher education and, and the police service. And then we moved to America. My husband uh, got a job that he couldn't, uh, an offer here that he couldn't refuse. So we moved um, across the pond. And I had a sm- we had a small child at that point. So I basically concentrated on, on raising him for a few years. And then we, we brought with us our old, um, she wasn't old at the time, but we brought with us Brenna, our, our Labrador retriever. And while we were here, she, we decided that we were going to have a litter of puppies. And I kept one of the puppies, Willow. And I'd always regretted with Brenna because she, she came from a long line of field trial champions. And I'd always regretted not doing anything with her. But I'd, you know, other than training her, to, I mean, she's a perfect family um, member of the family she's um, she's well trained but she's she doesn't do a you know a task a job so with with willow i really wanted to to uh, to find something for her to do but i wasn't really interested in hunting with her and someone suggested search and rescue so i uh, researched it and found a team that i really liked and fortunately for me the team um, used positive reinforcement. They had members in the team that were Karen Pryor graduates, um, and I started to learn about clicker training. Um, and my interest in behaviour science was, re- you know, I'd always been interested in behaviour. And looking back, I realised that from a very small child, I've always been interested in behaviour because I used to study animals when I was as young as maybe four or five. I used to sit for hours and watch behaviour. So it kind of brought me back to that place. And uh, then when we moved briefly to California for two years I really got into it because I could no longer do search and rescue with my team so I just started doing courses and I did course after course after course um, and got really really embroiled in it and that's when I discovered that there was such a thing as conservation work with with your dog so that combined my love of animals and nature and conservation with my other love which was then scent work because I was completely addicted to that by then so it was just a dream to to combine those two things so when we got back to Indiana I set up Nose No Limit um, and and it kind of went from there and you know it's still very early days but um, we have we have already done some work with turtles and um, wind turbine surveys and we've and hopefully we've got another contract um, looking for a, an endangered bird coming up in the next few weeks. Not everyone is going to be familiar with conservation work with dogs. So can you describe a little bit of what that means? Well, so, I mean, everyone knows, I think, by now that dogs have got much more superior olfactory systems than humans. And we've seen dogs working in search and rescue. We've seen dogs at the airports, probably. And we've seen dogs um, working for the police to detect uh, drugs and in the military to detect explosives and the fire departments use them for accelerants and so it was really a natural extension to have them start looking for for things that we need to find in conservation and in science because they can we already know that they can sniff out diseases for medical applications so to have them sniff out animals and plants was was really you know you know just an extension of what they already are capable of doing um, and anything basically with uh, with an odor, they can detect if they if they're trained to do so. So uh, you have dogs in conservation that will find endangered species or invasive species, diseases. You know, I the, the I don't know if we found the limits yet of what they can 
they can really do for us. It'd be neat if, if they could, though you wouldn't want them to become infected themselves, but if they could be an early uh, detection system for the coronavirus. Well, that's actually already happening. Ah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a team in, in the UK that's been looking at that very thing, and they've, I think they've already proven that they can detect it. Wow. There are obviously a few hurdles to get over. There are some, there are some concerns from, uh, with safety, I would have thought. So they have to, I mean, it's a respiratory infection that we know that dogs can actually contract. So you'd have to look at that and make sure that, that you weren't putting the dogs at risk. Right, because you certainly do not want this crossing over into dogs. No, and it, and it already has a couple. There have been a couple of cases, I think, where dogs have have been tested positive. It doesn't seem to have the the same fatality effects to them that it does to us. But I mean, the, the numbers are so small. I'm not even sure you can really say that yet. Right, right. And the other thing is that they can, of course, be a vector. So I mean, if you're if you're at the airport and the dog is going down the line sniffing people. I think they would need uh, to be sure that it wasn't going to be passing it from person to person. Person to person, yes. Um, however, if you know if it's going to pull that one person off the plane that you would then be sat there with for the next eight hours, I think you know I think on a risk reward basis that you would certainly that would certainly be favourable to have that person removed from the plane because if you spend the next eight hours with, hours with them, then everyone on the plane is going to get off with it the other side. But yeah, so yeah, COVID-19 detection has been looked at by a number of different groups already all over the world, um, dog detection. And I've seen in some of the forums that I belong to, I've seen, you know, lengthy discussions about the practicalities of it and the safety of it. Hmm. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking now if there might not be other species that could do the detection where it would be easier to protect the scent detector. Hmm. Well, that's a very interesting idea as well. I mean, they use rats to, to sniff out landmines, don't they? Yes. And there was one that I heard, and this was a long time ago, so I could be totally wrong, but they were using, I think it was wasps. Uh-huh. And they, uh, they had them in a, like a vial, a, a glass vial, and the wasp was, would move from one end to the other of the vial depending upon what scent it was detecting and and they were I think they were used for drug detection but I could be completely wrong and they had the advantage of they trained up really fast uh, much faster than than dogs that would be an interesting one to explore because all they were asking the wasp to do is to fly towards the scent that they were awarded for probably I mean I I wouldn't I, I would it would be along those lines yeah well i've just read a paper recently i've just seen a paper recently which is more up your street which was um showing that horses can detect changes in human scent in related to their emotions and their emotional state yes yes wasn't that familiar that there was the research backing it up but i know that that's been talked about i think it's like recent in the last like few weeks i saw it ah Okay. It's not a surprise. And and certainly horses' ability to detect scent is, I mean, we haven't tested it to compare horses and dogs. They certainly have much stronger ability to detect scent than we do. Yeah, most things do. Most things do. That's <laughs> yeah. right. We're, we're an incompetent species when it comes to a lot of things like scent and 
Um, well, I think we've lost a lot of our abilities. I think yes. we probably had had more ability in uh, millennia gone by. Yes. So, speak. So, speaking of losing things, the original reason that we thought a podcast might be interesting was really centered around the losses that that we encounter with through climate change, through habitat destruction, through, you know, pollution and so on. And that when you, so you, you emailed me this lovely email in which you were talking about how sometimes it, it might be helpful to go back and think about some of the childhood memories as a way of remembering what we've lost. And the example that you gave were hedgehogs. And little did you know that I don't really know why, because of course we don't have hedgehogs in North America, and that may be one of the reasons. But I am utterly, absolutely enchanted by hedgehogs. So, yes. And so any opportunity to talk about hedgehogs, I'm I'm up for it. Um, (laughs) But that that it's not so much talking about hedgehogs. It's this idea of what is it that we want? I mean, we, we're looking at climate change and we talk about the difference that horse people can make, the difference that dog people can make. I think one of the things that we can say, and it's certainly been very evident in the coronavirus, that those of us who have horses, and I suspect it also applies to a certain extent to people of dogs, we've been incredibly lucky during this uh, the last few months because we have land. So being locked down means something very different to me than it does to somebody who's living in an apartment 10 flights up, uh, an apartment full of people, some of whom you may not get along with. So I can step out of the barn door and I'm seeing a green world that is full of life that is very much what is when we start talking about what is it that we want well this is what i want you know i want to right now it's the the barn swallows are fledging and so we've had i think we have nine nests in the the barn aisle and we've had over 40 birds fledging to date there's still some active nests so i don't know what the grand total will be for this year but the barn is alive with swallows. And when you step out of the barn, the air is full of the swallows flying, swooping about, learning to fly. It's just an amazing time of the year. So for me, it's very easy to imagine what is it that I want in terms of what is it that we're working for in the climate change? Mm -hmm. But it's easy to forget what's missing from our environments. Yes. When when I was little, when we moved to the house, the giant elms were still standing, but they were dead. So the last of the elms were in the woods around my house, and for years they would you'd see them sending out shoots, sort of starting to look like they might grow, or there'd be a, a sapling that would start up, and then the Dutch elm disease would take hold and. The grapevines climbed up the the trunks and the wood rot set in and pulled them all down and those giants are are gone. They're, you know, the elms are gone. Mm -hmm. 
and you were talking about the hedgehogs in the garden. How do we help people to appreciate and want to help do something about the climate change? And your suggestion was, well, let's go back and remember Mm -hmm. what we knew as children. Yeah. Yeah, so this is one of the very few silver linings that uh, that perhaps we can take from the coronavirus is that it's given us the opportunity to start reconnecting with some of the things that, as you say, we've forgotten. Um, because I, I, I think that most children are born with um, innate curiosity. Um, there's very few children that aren't fascinated by the things they see around them. And they gradually become less you know, less connected to the natural world as they get older. And I think that our systems in some way must must teach them that. You know, they obviously there's other things that they get focused on, but, uh, you know, uh, Stafford Beer always used to say that the purpose of a system is what it does. So it doesn't matter what you intend the system to do, it's what the system does that matters. And if we built a system that, that disconnects us from nature, then that's the purpose of the system because that's what we built. Yes, yes. <laughs> Even if it's unintentional. So, yeah, back to hedgehogs. So when I was back in the mid-70s, when I was, you know, very young, we had a weeping willow at the bottom of our garden and we had hedgehogs that lived underneath it. And <sighs> and I used to see them, you know, almost every day, I, I think. And I was, like you, totally fascinated, still am, by them. Uh, for those people who don't know what they look like, they're a small mammal that are covered in spines They've got very cute little faces. They're a distant relative of the shrew, so they have like a very pointy nose. When they're threatened or they need to defend themselves, they curl into a ball and, and they cover their, f- their feet and their, and their faces inside the ball and just and all you have is a ball of spines. And they're also very vocal. They, they snuffle and they grunt as they're foraging around and make very endearing noises. They're nocturnal. And then they have a like an omnivore diet like us. They like to forage for snails and worms and berries and insects. And their numbers are in massive decline in the UK. They used to be reasonably abundant, um, and now they're they're very much threatened. Uh, there's actually now a British Hedgehog Preservation Society, um, and in my own realm of scent detection, there's a there's a sniffer dog called Henry in the UK that's been trained to. To locate them so that they can be their nests can be moved um, for construction projects and things. That, so yeah, they're they're very much threatened, and it's not it's not necessarily climate change that's the main cause of that. It's mostly human expansion and roads. Roads are the big the big thing. Uh, back in the in the seventies, there was a, a poet called Pam Ayres who who actually worked quite near where I lived at the time and my my older sister kind of indirectly knew her um she's quite famous in the UK now her name's Pam Ayers as I said and she wrote a poem about hedgehogs which I'm and she had it she's got a very very strong Berkshire accent so I'm not going to attempt to <laughs> you, you might have to dig out the poem and and, and put it in because I'm not going to attempt to I won't be able to do it justice but she wrote a poem about how how fond she was of hedgehogs and how on her drive to work in the morning, she, she kept seeing them squashed and dead and flat on the roads. And then the last verse of the poem talks about, it says, spare a thought for hedgehogs, lest they become extinct. Um, but when she wrote it, she didn't really believe that was ever going to be a possibility. 
And then two years ago, in 2018, she wrote another book called The Last Hedgehog. And it's, uh, I haven't actually um, read it. I, I didn't even know about it till I went looking for her, you know, 1970s poem for this podcast. But that, that book apparently is a lot darker than her poems are usually very funny. And that book I, um, is darker because it's, it is um, The Last Hedgehog basically talking to the human race about how we've, how we killed of all of its family members until he was the very last one. And it's it's now a very real possibility that we're facing with that and many other species around the globe. Which is just heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's, you know, that certain species get our attention, the elephants and giraffes and hedgehogs in the UK. Mm-hmm. But they're just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's hundreds of species going extinct every day that we don't even we've never even heard of. Right. And the problem with that, I mean, people say, well, if I haven't heard of it, what's the what's the big deal? But the the big deal is going back to cybernetics is that we live in a huge system. We live in a big big old system, and the um, the strength of the system is based upon is bigger than the strength of the sum of its parts. So we start losing the parts and the system will eventually collapse. Yeah. And we don't know which is, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back, which struts, when you start pulling them out, at what point do you pull out the strut that where the whole system collapses and there's nothing you can do about it? Yeah. It's a bit like that childhood game of Kaplunk where you, you don't know which straw you pull out before all the marbles fall. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, that kind of brings me up, make, brings to mind another writer that I've been reading a lot of lately called Douglas Tallamy. Um, he wrote a book called Nature's Best Hope, which is, is full of solutions um, and is very, a very hopeful book. But um, I watched a webinar of his recently. So he, he started the webinar with a, a picture of the, the red oaks near his house, um, and, and it had been a very um, bumper crop of acorns that year. It's, I think they call it a mast year. Every once in a while, the the acorns, the oaks produce more acorns than normal, and they're not really sure why. But um, so there were all these acorns on the ground, and he picked one up and took it home and um, and filmed it because inside the acorn was was an acorn weevil um, because. Uh, these things called acorn weevils lay their drill a hole and lay their eggs inside the acorn and put one egg in there, which then forms into a, a larva, and and then eventually it hatches out when the acorn drops from the tree, and the uh, the larva then burrows itself into the ground and it waits underground for two years because the acorn crop only comes around every two years, so the uh, the pupa goes underground and pupates and then it. Um, emerges as an acorn weevil and the whole cycle goes round again. Um, meanwhile, the, the acorn that's been left on the ground with the hole in it is then in ha- uh, taken over by timber ants, so car- carpenter ants. So these, um, these ants find these acorns and they, they carry in the queen and the eggs and they, they take up residence and they live in the acorn for probably another two years until the acorn disintegrates. And they are the... the they are the staple food of the pileated woodpeckers feed their young. So in all of a sudden, you've gone from, you know, a, a species of insect, an acorn weevil that probably no one's ever heard of. And, and you realise that there's this interconnection between oaks and weevils and ants 
and woodpeckers that are a very iconic symbol in America. I mean, Woody yes. Woodpecker is based on on that. It's the biggest woodpecker that we have here. And I think people would be upset and they would sure as, sure as heck notice if we lost those. But they perhaps don't realise that those woodpeckers and their existence is predicated upon ants and weevils. No. Well, I certainly didn't know that that loop. But those loops are everywhere. That's that's how nature works. There's an infinite number. Yes. Yeah, there's an infinite number of those loops. And as you say, you take out one of those struts and all sorts of things collapse around it that you weren't weren't aware of and you had no, no idea that those connections were there until it's too late. That's right. Like the barn swallows that I so enjoy, mm-hmm. which are so dependent upon the number of insects that are available in the environment, but pull out those struts through a uh, change in temperature, change in climate, and you could have a collapse of the barn swallows. Mm-hmm. And then who, who knows what other species depend upon them? That's right. And so it goes around, yeah. So what are some of the solutions? Mm-hmm. That's what I was about to get on to. So, um, so Telemi um, talks about a concept called the Backyard National Park. Um, I, I forget exactly what he calls it, um, but he he basically suggests that we are sitting, all of us, and you going back to your comment about the the land that horse people have. Of course, all of us in in suburban America are sitting on backyards. Um, you know, even if even if you've only got a patio garden, you're still sitting on land that that could could form habitat for something. Yes. So he is talking about how if we all start to recognise that we are sitting in amongst this habitat and we start to rethink how we use that land and we, we perhaps, you know, everyone, everyone likes to have their, their yard looking a certain way, but quite often some of the things that we choose to put in our yards at the moment are basically just decorative. They are, when it comes to ecological habitat for native species, they are kind of deserts because they don't provide the food and the shelter and the resources that the native species need. So he's he's um, basically arguing in the book that if we start to go you know go back to being interested in these things and to start noticing these things and just put in a few key he calls them keystone species, which kind of brings us back to architecture and. Um, tension and compression yes um but uh he calls them keystone species and he he says that there are certain species that seem to carry more of the load than others in terms of producing the things that most other species rely on so um, for instance a vast majority of birds will feed their young caterpillars because it's um, an easily digestible food that is not covered in a hard exoskeleton that the that the, the birds can't access, the baby birds can't access. So there are certain species that um, harbour way more caterpillars than others. So just putting in a few of those species in your backyard will go a, a huge way to, to helping a, a, a large number of birds. So throughout the book, he's talking about how we can all do these do these things in our own backyards. And if we all did it, the amount of land that would then be given over 
to this homegrown, that's what he calls it, homegrown national park, would be significantly more vast than all of the national parks in the US combined. Yes. There's a real rethinking, reframing that needs to occur. So in my community, I live on, on a wild gully, on a woodland. That, so I live in the middle of suburbia, but my backyard looks out over, over woods and it follows a water system. So there, is, there are no houses for quite a long way. But if you go in any other direction, you're surrounded by, by people. And it's a great environment in that there are places for wildlife to hide. So we have a huge deer population, which is not unusual. And there are, we'll see fox in the backyard and the wild turkeys and so on, which is just delightful. With the deer and so on coming up into the gardens, in, I used to have a beautiful botanical garden. It's just a wonderful collection of instances, some very rare plants, just very beautiful plants. It was, it was a delightful environment. And then the deer, the numbers increased, and they thought what I was planting was really yummy. And so over time, a lot of the things that I treasured and valued and spent a lot of uh, time and energy fussing over, there was no point because as soon as they were about to bloom, the deer would come up and chomp them down and say, thank you very much. That was a yummy meal. Mm -hmm. And so what I have now is a zoological park. And I enjoy my zoological park far more than I ever enjoyed the botanical garden. <laughs> if, I, if I insisted on having the botanical garden, I would drive myself crazy. And I would have yeah. to fence things, and I would be fighting against the deer, and I would be resentful of the deer, and I would be trying to get rid of them, and I would be, you know, joining the people at the town hall saying, you know, what, what, what are we going to do about all these deer? And instead, I, I delight in them. I love mm -hmm. watching them. Um, just an hour or so ago, um, a mother deer and her fawn with her, the spots was uh, up in the backyard playing. And um, so I, I love my zoological garden, but it takes a reframing yeah. for people to see the, to see the animals as neighbors and not enemies. So there was at the barn the other night, a husband and wife drove up and the uh, wife was, you know, she was just on the brink of tears because her little dog, her, uh, I think it was a chihuahua cross of something, so a little dog, um, was missing. And she made the comment of, you know, there are just so many animals around. Meaning it's quite possible that her little dog was um, eaten by something. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, well, yeah, there are a lot of little animals around. And, and I know how heartbreaking, I know how heartbreaking it is to lose a beloved member of your family. And you don't want to think about your little dog being gotten by a coyote or a hawk or something. But we have to reframe things so that we don't see these animals as the enemy. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I love the, I love the idea of, so what, what did he call it? A grow your own? 
national um, park. The, the homegrown national the park. The homegrown national park. Because I think that absolutely is a direction that we can be heading in. And for so many reasons. Because the more we think about the land that we have stewardship over mm-hmm. in terms of biodiversity and how we manage it so that we are sequestering more carbon, those acres add up. And the more you reconnect with nature, you know, the more that you start noticing the birds that are in your backyard or the birds that aren't anymore. Yeah. You know, you hang your feeder up and, wow, you know, we used to have cardinals on the feeder. I haven't seen a cardinal in a long time. You know, those birds that you don't have to be a birder to recognize, you know, what's missing mm-hmm. and that you start to care. Yes. I think that's hugely important. Yes. We've lost the connection. We've lost our, we need to repair our relationship with nature and to recognize that we live within it and not, not outside of it. Um, yeah. And that we are dependent upon it. So we have to find a way to coexist with it. And I love the idea that you you decided to give up on the garden and said, enjoy the animals, because that's precisely what we do with training, right? When we're looking for a way to reduce a problem behavior, we step back and say, okay, it's not that I want to stop. I'm not going to focus on stopping this problem behavior. I'm going to ask myself the question, what can, what can I train instead? What can this animal do instead? And so it's the same kind of principle. You, you step back and you say, well, what am I missing here? Let's look at the bigger picture. Yes. And so going back to if, if a system, it's, it's what a system does that defines a system. Mm-hmm. And I hope I'm saying that. Um, yeah. Okay. The purpose of a system is what it does. Okay. Then if we look at schools, purpose of mm-hmm. schools is what it does. Schools play a big role in disconnecting us from nature. If for no other reason, then think of the hours that we're spending in a classroom, sitting at a desk, instead of outside, wiggling our toes in in wet mud, watching hedgehogs under a willow tree. Yep. So... In this age, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about with the coronavirus are the forest schools. Mm -hmm. And I need to talk to somebody who's involved in the forest schools where the children are, they're out all day. And if the schools are not going to be a safe environment in terms of the coronavirus, but you still want the children to have a, a great education, what better way to, to have a great education than to move the classrooms outside where you yes. can? Which they might have to do. Which they might have to do. Yes. That's right. And then the opportunities for reconnecting to nature are huge. Yes, and reconnecting to systems. So um, you've just reminded me that when, when my son was very small, one of the types of schools that I looked at for him in in the UK before we moved to America I forget exactly what style of education it was but I I was very seriously considering it because um, when I went to talk to them and to see what they did 
they, they showed me that today's lesson was going to be about making bread, which sounds simple enough. But in order to get to the point of making bread, the children had planted wheat and made ah. flour. <laughs> and, ah, and yes. The concept, and it just it blew my mind that they had gone from the very beginning of a system and all the way through and so and showed them that in order to get to bread, you have to start with a seed and grow wheat. And I just loved that concept. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, that, that's the kind of schools, that, that's the kind of school we need. It is. The kind of exploration and the reconnection to systems. Uh, I think, so I mean, I, you know, there's, there's many things that I think uh, create our resistance to climate change action. action. And one of them um, I kind of call the futility trap. And that everyone thinks that it's too overwhelming it's too big a problem. What could I possibly do? Because people are afraid of large systems. They're afraid of thinking systemically. They like to see things in small boxes and neat labels. And, you know, they like things to be black and white and yes. simple. But, yes. But, but it isn't. It, it never has been and it never will be. So we either have to find a way of dumbing everything down so that everybody's comfortable which, you know, there are ways that we can do some of that. But we also have to to change people's thinking so that they are comfortable with complexity. Yeah, because complexity is is the reality. It is the reality. Yes. And complexity has always excited me, but some people don't feel that way. And I understand why, but I I I'd like to see a way of 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 convincing people that embracing the complexity is actually quite thrilling. And it it's not you know, it doesn't for me feel futile. It feels empowering because when you realize that, you know, one slight action can have a huge impact because of the reverberation around the system, right? Yes. One small, one small little ripple can turn into a tidal wave. Yeah. It's related, you know, I'm thinking now in terms of the constructional training where you look at behavior that you'd like to teach and you think, oh, where would I even begin? Yeah. Um, Oh, you see a, a well-trained animal. You see one of your dogs finding a, a, the scent, and you think, "Wow, that's you know, how did you ever train that?" Well, when you start to look at the underlying components that go into the training of a complex behavior, it becomes more understandable. Mm-hmm. So you you can find ways to make the complexity reachable. Yes. And then it becomes exciting because then all the nuance becomes more visible. Mm-hmm. And and when you make a little change in that known system and you see the ripple go through, it's exciting. It is exciting. It's very exciting. So through training, when we start to understand through just the model of training the how you begin to understand complex systems that's certainly within the reach of horse people yes and i think it's where where the whole of behavior stems from and why i think i started out as a systemic thinker when i was you know only 4 years old because studying behavior is to study the most basic system on earth yes so what are some of the other reasons that people are resistant to climate change um 
Well, uh, I think um, I think our language and our rhetoric has a big part to play in it. The way we back to Lakoff's framing, the way we frame our language. Yes. So um, in the webinar I watched with um, Douglas Tellamy, he was talking about the the species that you need to introduce into your yard, for instance, and you know most of them have got awful names. So you know we talk about butterfly weed, and he said I'm not going to call it that anymore. I'm going to call it Monarch's Delight. Yes, yes. <laughs> because it's it's important. The words we use are important. They and they conjure up images and they conjure up emotions. And so it's important that we we name things correctly. So it is a monarch's delight. It's not a weed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love because I love butterfly weed, and now I will I will look at it completely differently now because I will call it monarch's delight. Monarch's delight. Yes. That's, yeah. So that's one of the one of the areas I think we need to really look at. You know, bugs. Why do we call them bugs? So that's one area. So um, then we need to repair our relationship with nature. Um, and I think we've talked about that a bit with, with how we reconnect children to their, well, we don't need to reconnect children to their curiosity. We need to reconnect adults to their childhood curiosity. Yes. yes. Um, and, and elevate, thus elevate the status of, of nature back to its, back to its essential part of our lives and make it something something of joy rather than something we need to control and um, something we need to conquer. So I mean, I, I'm sort of hopeful that the, the lockdown has done some of that as well, because more people than ever are probably going out into nature at the moment because they have no other choices. Right. And they're rediscovering how, how interesting it is and how calming it is. And I've seen more people interested in their backyards. I mean, I've seen more people planting things, albeit going to the garden centres and planting the uh, the cultivated varieties from Asia and Europe, which aren't necessarily going to help the native species, but at least they're starting to to show more of an interest in their, you know, the ecology outside their back door. Yes. So it's... And, um, and you know, maybe they will start looking at things, you know, at like the forest schools because we're going to have to rethink schools yes that will happen too it's a necessity because right now there there's such a quandary of are schools going to open are they not going to open is it safe is it not safe is it going to be safe for the teachers for the bus drivers you know for all the 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 people who are working in the schools and how can we how can we create a different system and one that produces a better result? A better result, yeah. Well, and there's, there's certainly been like a, an increase in bird watching, for instance, as well. Yes. So, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely areas like that where people are starting to connect with things that they perhaps hadn't thought about at all or at least for a long time. So I'm kind of hopeful. I'm kind of hopeful in that department. I think we also need to... We need to start trying to uh, engage with people less adversarially. Yes. So starting from a foundation of agreement instead of opposition. And I know you've covered that a lot in previous podcasts. Um, but what would it look it's... like? So if, how would you envision that? Beginning with what, what should we call the climate change crisis? <laughs> Well, I don't know if we even need to start there. I need to think we maybe we need to go back from there because some people don't believe it is a crisis. True. Um, so perhaps we start from a place of of childhood memories. Perhaps we start from a place of 
just talking to them about where they grew up and what species they remember and, and what their environment used to look like and and find out if they've considered what it looks like now and what you know what their grandchildren are now seeing or their children are seeing and look at what's changed in their lifetimes in order to make them more aware of how fast it's changing and from there you can start to branch out to the causes and you know I, I think there is st- there is um, certainly a, f- a large level of agreement that there have been there have been and there is a lot of change there's less agreement about whether or not that change is man-made but what we perhaps can do is bypass that and go straight to well have we got the power to change it for the better, have we got the power to improve it? Um, does it really matter who's to blame? Because right. we're here now. Right. right. <laughs> so even if we don't agree on that point, let's not waste any more energy arguing that. Let's just all agree that we have the skills and the, the intellect and the ability to do something about it. And do we all agree that we want to? And I think, I think we'd probably get a fair amount of agreement there. And then we've got a call to arms and so, to action. Yes. And it begins by just going back and thinking about what what was life like for you when you were little and the things that brought you the great delight. Um, yeah. Yeah. It goes back to considering when was the last time you saw a hedgehog? Yes. Yes. Or, yeah. or a barn or Whatever swallow. it was for you. What was yes. your hedgehog? Yes. What was your hedgehog? Or what would you like to see? So, yeah. you know, I've, I've wanted to, to see actual hedgehogs. So when I was in the UK on various visits, several of the people I was with got to know that, you know, hedgehogs were, were something that I wanted to see. And for several years, I would hear, oh, yes, we saw them in the back garden two nights ago, but they were never in the back garden when I was there. And finally, one, one of my friends took me to a hedgehog rescue and and I got to feed the baby hedgehogs. It was a darling, yes. But it wasn't a hedgehog in the wild. It was a hedgehog in a rescue. Yeah. And then I was with another friend, and we were walking out walking her dog, and we found a very sick hedgehog, clearly a hedgehog in trouble. And it was it was a very cold June, and apparently a lot of the hedgehogs were struggling with the cold and. So we, we had a container, we put him in the container, called the hedgehog rescue, and they came and, and rescued him the, the following morning. So I, I got to spend the evening watching this poor hedgehog who was very sick. But he wasn't, again, he wasn't a healthy hedgehog in the wild. And that's, mm-hmm. so, so I would say I still really haven't seen a hedgehog, you know, not in the wild, not a healthy, sure. happy hedgehog in the wild and they're such an iconic part of England yes yes they are and I wonder how many you know I wonder if you know my, my son's never seen one for instance yeah. um I mean we've lived in America for most of his life so that's not really surprising but I wonder if his nieces and nephews and his, his cousins and uh, my nieces and nephews have seen how often they've seen one because yeah. they're just not as common anymore and yet there was a piece on the news today that they are introducing buffalo into the UK for the first time in what would be thousands of years that they have been in the wild in the hmm. UK. 
So there's a hopeful wow. note. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, there's a hopeful note on the the point of hedgehogs as well, because there are, as I say, there's this um, preservation society that are doing a lot of things to try and preserve them. And one of the things that uh, is happening is a thing called hedgehog highways. So hedgehogs mostly live in people's backyards, um, back gardens in the UK. And um, in the UK, most people fence their their gardens in, which prevents ba- which creates barriers for the hedgehogs moving around um, and forces them sometimes onto roads. Uh-huh. And so there's a big move, and I don't know how, well, I say big, <laughs> there is a movement to uh, to create hedgehog highways. So you go to the website and there's all these um, ways that you can create little doorways in your fences or in your gates. Oh. And there's all these, there's all these really uh, gorgeous examples of how you can create just a little hedgehog hole and you can put a little plaque to say what it is so that the hedgehogs have got all these um, little avenues and highways that they can they can get about from one back garden to another. Yeah. Well, this is how this is how we connect up all of our homegrown national parks. Yes. Yeah. It is. Exactly. Very neat. So, what other solutions are there? So, I think there's there's some work to be done around our value systems. I think we need to um, shift our obsession with the growth of our wallets and perhaps move it from there to the growth of our minds. (laughs) Um, What a great uh, way of putting it. Yes. This this obsession that we have with with expansion and growth and economic growth as a measure of progress um, has has long uh, just flummoxed me because we live in a finite system. There is, you know, I'm wearing a T-shirt right now, which you can't see, which says there is no planet B. Yes. We have nowhere else to go. So if we continue to to foul our nest, where are we going to live? <laughs> so we cannot keep using up the resources as if they're infinite because they're not. And why we why we even need to, I don't really understand. Why we can't be more be more careful with the resources that we have and be more sustainable with the resources that we have and why we have to keep growing as long as we have everything we need. Uh, why is growth and expansion a measure of progress and success? Why isn't, um, so there's a great quote by um, Aldo Leopold, and it says, the oldest task in history is to live on a piece of land without spoiling it. Why isn't that a measure of success? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you're going to talk about changes in that camp, you know, we when we're buying a house, for instance, we, we get the details of the house and it, it, it talks about things like the square footage and um, things like that. We we're you know we're we're preoccupied with how big it is and how many rooms it has and how many bathrooms it has. What if it was to instead say things like how efficient it was and how many how many species of animal it supports <laughs> in the garden? Yes. Um, why aren't they measures of you know? Why aren't they measures of the the and the value of the house? The value of the house. Yeah. Yeah. They're certainly the value of the house for me. Uh, whenever I look for a house, I go straight in the front door and straight out the back one into the yes. <laughs> into the yes. into the backyard before I even look at the inside. Yeah. So it's it's changing things like that. So it's it's changing our outdated value systems um, and shifting them away from, you know, big lawns and and cars on the driveway being the, the status symbol to other things being the status symbol. And I and I see. I see small nuggets of progress in that direction too, but but there could be there could be tidal waves of them 
Um, like how many bird feeders does your garden support? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. So um, I belong to a Facebook group called Indiana Nature. And one of the, one of the things on there that, that uh, some of those members produced and created was a thing called GAINLIP, which is an acronym meaning the Great American Indiana Nature Lepidoptera Project. <laughs> oh, okay. And they're creating a database of all the butterflies and moths in Indiana. And they rely on sightings to be reported by, you know, by the public, by people who aren't necessarily, you know, experts in Lepidoptera. And so they take photographs of these things and they say, what's this? <laughs> and, and the people go, oh, you found the, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll get very excited yes. about this rare moth that they found. And they'll say, can we, can we please use it and put it in the database? And we, can, we, can we use your photograph? And it, um, I see people getting very excited about that and people getting more and more interested in finding, you know, finding the, the moths and butterflies on their properties because of the status symbol of getting them in the gain lip. Yes, yes. And you could absolutely do the same thing with plants. You could absolutely do the same thing with everything. Yes. It's just changing our value systems. So another example is that the other day I was out watering the new native flower garden that I've they've pl- I've planted deliberately on my front lawn so that all of my neighbours have to walk past it and I've put signs <laughs> I've put signs up saying it's a butterfly garden and deliberately so so that I can showcase to people who see value in and status symbols in their lawns and their beautifully manicured beds of of Asian and European imported plants. Um, I want them to be able to see that native plants can be just as beautiful. And I want to see that mine are teeming with life, whereas theirs are a, 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 you know, an environmental desert. And I want to spark conversation in a non-confrontational way. And the other evening, I got my wish because one of my neighbours walked past and saw the sign. And they saw a plaque on my garage wall, which was the Indiana um, Wildlife Federation Certified Wildlife Habitat plaque. Yes. And they wanted to know what it was. And so I explained that because my my yard had the five basic elements of, of life to support the uh, natural indigenous uh, native species, that I could earn the right to, to, you know, with a donation to the charity to, to display the plaque. And it's a status symbol. And he was curious and he and they could tell that he wanted one. <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, um, if you've got some spare plants, I'll put them in. Uh, and so that's all it takes. It yes. takes changing people's value systems yep. to, to, to make them value things that perhaps matter more than another acre of ecologically devastating lawn. Yeah, and the ripple goes out. And before you know it, that becomes the norm. Yes, because it's trendy. It becomes trendy, so it becomes cool. Yes, um, yes. And then yeah. when you're out, walking the dog around the neighborhood and the, the conversation becomes, what did you spot in your lawn today? Yeah. 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 And then you can put out on your neighborhood Facebook page, guess what visited my garden this morning? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that that fills the chatter. Yes. Yes. What a great vision. Mm-hmm. And then we, the system will change. Yes. It's a, it's, it's, it's a bit like changing, um, the economy by changing how you purchase what you purchase you know you use your your income and your spending to change policy yes 
it's the same thing. It's just, it's all it's all part and parcel of the same the same process. And then we may even start to value learning because I want to be able to identify this plant that has popped up in my lawn that I don't know. So I I need to ask somebody who knows more about botany than I do and and who's made more of a study of it. And so I begin to appreciate the people who have spent time learning instead of buying the next plastic widget. Absolutely. Yeah. And valuing exploration. Um, yes. I mean, one of my earliest childhood memories is that um, I used to collect snails um, and watch them, much to the chagrin of, of the neighbours who thought this was very <laughs> unladylike. <laughs> That I used to have like you know hundreds of snails in a in a box, and they were all in, in England. You can find snails that have got yellow shells and pink shells, and and I used to watch them, and I used to I used to watch them breed. So I, at a very early age, discovered, I and mean, I didn't know what what the words were, but I discovered that you know I, I watched snails um, come up alongside each other, and they fire darts into each other because they're they're hermaphrodite and they can fertilize each other. And I, and I watched that process happening and I watched them lay eggs and I watched those eggs hatch out. And so I, I learned for myself that, that, that baby snails come out of the eggs with, with shells and because I watched the process happening. Wow. Yeah. And exploration is key to, it's key to curiosity and, the, and valuing education and wanting to know more. And it's a, it's a system changer. And somehow or another, it gets squashed. Well, the other very important thing that, that that kind of mind gives you is it gives you protection from indoctrination and from yes. brainwashing. Yes. Because if you've always been somebody who asks questions and doesn't take anything on face value because they want to discover it for themselves, I mean, some people might call that obnoxious. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but what it does give you is protection from from being brainwashed and from and of course we suffer from that dreadfully at the moment with with this kind of like meme culture that that just you know just creates this kind of like mob mentality that that everybody just goes along with what they're told and never questions it even if it's wildly inaccurate yes and even if it will get you right now even if it will get you very sick or potentially uh in a hospital on a ventilator on the way out yeah. yeah. Well, which is not the most hopeful note to end on. No. We should find a we should find a better end note to end on. Oh, I, I, I think I think you've given us many better ends. So I think the I have a good ending. Give me a good ending. So so when my son was was uh, younger, he used to like watching a children's program, which I'm not sure if you get here, called Bob the Builder. Did it ring any bells? Ah, uh, no. Okay. Well But that doesn't anyway, matter. It it was a, an animated uh, kids program about a builder called Bob um, and his friends. And his mantra was, he would always say, can we fix it? And everyone would echo back to him, yes, we can. Yes. And we can. And I think, and we can. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we I absolutely believe can. we can. Yes. Yes. We just now have to get people wanting to. And yes. what we've been talking about this afternoon are lots of ways to help people to want to. Because, yes, we we can fix it. We must fix it. We just have to want to fix it. And as behavior scientists, we're absolutely well positioned to figure out how to create that motivation. Yes. Because that's what we do. That's what we do.
Absolutely. Well, this has been a great conversation. I, I, I had no idea some of the directions we were going to head down, but I loved it. So thank you. Yes, great rabbit holes. Or, or hedgehog tunnels. Hedgehog tunnels. <laughs> right. I, I may have to change rabbit holes to let's pop into this hedgehog tunnel and see where it takes us. Yes. So I thank you immensely, immensely. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah. I loved it. We can fix it. Yes, we can. This was such a good conversation. I don't want it to be something you listen to as entertainment and then forget about. Joe reminds us that the purpose of a system is what it does. That's a great quote. So what does this podcast do? I hope it helps all of us to send ripples out that make a difference. Last week, Sarah Nichols urged us to pick one thing. Pick one thing where you can make a difference. Pick one thing and let the ripples go out. This week, Joe has given us even more ways to make a difference. We can create a network of backyard national parks. The national park can be as small as pots on an apartment balcony or your suburban lawn, or as large or larger than your horse farm. We just need to rethink how we use that land. I love the idea of encouraging a few keynote species. Remember what those are? They're the species that carry more of the load than others in terms of producing the things that many species rely on. One slight action can have a huge impact. One small ripple can turn into a tidal wave. The ripples can begin with small changes in our language. We can call butterfly weed monarch's delight. Monarch's delight helps us to connect to our childhood memories, to our childhood curiosity. And that, in turn, will help to elevate the status of nature back to being an essential part of our lives. Make it something of joy rather than something we need to control. Language matters. Joy reminds us that we need to learn how to engage people less adversarially. We need to start from a position of agreement instead of opposition. Can you imagine what that would look like? Where would you begin? Suppose you're in conversation with someone who isn't as interested in the environment as you are. A simple starting place might begin with childhood memories. Where did you grow up? What was the environment like? What has changed in your lifetime? Look at how fast these changes are happening. Bypass who is to blame. That just keeps everybody stuck in confrontation. Instead, let's agree that we have the skills. We have the intellect and the ability to do something about it. We can fix it. But we may need to work on our value systems to create the motivation to want to fix it. Our obsession with the growth of our wallets needs to shift to the growth of our minds. I loved that statement. And here's another quote that Joe shared with us. The greatest task is to live on a piece of land without spoiling it. Aldo Leopold. Why isn't that a measure of success? Plant a butterfly garden and you can begin to influence value systems. You can spark conversations in a non-confrontational way. 
You can model alternatives. You can change value systems in small ways that send the ripples out. And before you know it, those small changes become the norm. They become trendy. Can we fix it? Of course we can. Just begin by picking one thing, and then please visit the Horses for Future Facebook page and share the ripple you're setting into motion. Let's inspire one another with our thoughtful action. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can all make a difference.